Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Two quick verses. I want us to all say these out loud together. At the end, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond, thanks be to God. They come from Luke 2, chapter 11, and also uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 11, pardon me, and also Acts chapter 2. Let's read this. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Good morning. So this morning, we are going to be looking at the Lordship of Jesus. Um, I love that verse, that all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Lord and Christ. And, and when the angels come and they announce that Jesus, the Son of God, has come to earth, how is he announced? Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Today we're going to be thinking a lot about this concept of Christ being the Lord. What does that mean? We have a couple of things that go against us in our understanding of this. One is familiarity. If you've been around the church for a long time, you, you can become so familiar with calling Jesus Lord it's just a part of his title. It's just a, a part of, of his name. And so you, you might have that going against you, that there's just an overfamiliarity with the Lordship of Christ. And so we have a hard time really grasping the gravity of it. Another thing that we might have going against us is that we don't really think about or we don't use the word Lord much in our everyday lives. We don't have lords anymore in our modern day. And so, um, and so we have that going against us. But my, my hope today is that you will get a better grasp. We will have a better understanding of what it means that he is Lord. And, and when we call him Lord, that we will feel more appropriately what we should feel. Uh, when we call him Lord. We don't have much trouble, uh, or maybe as much trouble, thinking of Jesus as Savior. We naturally think of him as Savior, and it's because he has saved us, right? He has saved us from our sins. He has saved us from the wrath of God. He has saved us from an eternity apart from God in hell. He, he has saved us from the domain of darkness. He has saved us from our sins and all that that entails. 
And so we don't have a very hard time thinking of Jesus as Savior. But He is not Savior only. He is Savior and Lord. And so to begin with, I just want us to think about what that means for us uh, in believing, what it, what it means for a person who wants to become a Christian that Jesus is Savior and Lord. But before I jump into that, let's um, pray one more time. Father in heaven, we come before you today with, with Bibles and hearts opened. And we ask you, would you grant your Holy Spirit to your church today in order that we would would be given understanding in order that we would be taught lord jesus you said that the truth sets us free when we know the truth the truth sets us free there is freedom and joy in knowing you rightly and knowing your lordship and so would you help us to understand, give us soft hearts, and give us eyes to see, and be in my mouth, Lord. Help me to speak what is true, and only what is true. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the word Lord in the Greek is the word kurios, and it means a master or owner. So the word Lord means one who owns or controls another. That's what it means, even if that feels uncomfortable to us in our, uh, in our modern day. That is what the word Lord means. It is master, one who owns or controls another. This word kurios. It's a title that in the Old Testament was given to the one and only God. And so it implies deity. When we see that, this is, that Jesus is Lord, it is pointing to his deity, that he is a part of the Godhead. And so we're going to be you know, considering that as we think about this. Um, but what, what I want us to start with is what does this, what does this title Lord mean for those of us who want to become Christians, who, who are seeking to know who Jesus is, who, who are wanting to find him and follow him. And it has massive implica- implications on, on this. Um, A.W. Tozer, who many of us have read and, and benefited from, wrote, and I quote him, to urge men and women to believe in a divided Christ, and he's talking about a Savior but not Lord, um, to urge men and women to believe in a divided Christ is bad teaching, for no one can receive half of Christ or a third of Christ or a quarter of Christ. We are not saved by believing in an office or a work. What he's saying there is we don't believe in Jesus' office of Savior. We believe in Jesus. It's Him. We receive Christ Himself. It is a belief into Christ 
and all that he is that saves us, and he is both Savior and Lord. We are saved by believing and receiving a person. And so it's really bad teaching that says you just accept Jesus as your Savior, and then later down the road you can make Him Lord of your life, and that would be like a way of going deeper in your faith. That's really bad teaching. It creates these two levels almost to the Christian faith. There's those, it would, it would say that there are those who've received Christ as, as Savior, but there's no mention of repentance from sin, of turning from sin, of denying self, right, of death to self. Um, and then there are those who are submitted to the Lordship of Christ, and that's like level two of Christianity. And this isn't biblical. That's not good teaching. Um, in order to come to Jesus, you come to Him as your Lord, and you confess Him as your Lord, and you submit to Him as your Lord. Um, when, when we read the Gospels, this is how Jesus invited people to believe in Him. When you read the Gospels, the way that, that He would invite people to receive Him was He would say things like what He said to the rich young ruler, go sell everything that you have and, you'll, and give it to the poor, and then come follow Me. And when the rich young ruler decides not to obey Christ and walks away. He walks away from an invitation to be saved. You see? I mean, Jesus' response to that is how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. So I feel like I need to just say this up front because I can see I can see some mm, trepidation on your faces. This looking at the lordship of Christ, at his authority, at his power, at our submission wholeheartedly um this is going to be a very refreshing sermon to you. I want you to know that up front. As I have studied this, and I'm going to get to this in the end, but as I have studied this, as I have looked into the Lordship of Christ, and, and to be honest, trembled before Him, it has refreshed my heart in very surprising ways. So I want you to know that we're looking at, we are looking at his authority and our submission, and yet this is going to refresh you in ways you just cannot even imagine, but we'll get to that later. I just want you to know that. You can relax a little bit. There's some tension in the room, um, and so I want you to relax a little bit because this is going to be so good for us. Um, consider, you maybe know the story of Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, wasn't there when the rest of the disciples first saw Jesus after he'd been raised from the dead. And so he was having a hard time believing. And when he sees Jesus resurrected for the first time, what is it that he declares 
when he first believes. John 20, verses 28 through 29. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. And so you see that to believe in Christ is to see him as Lord. He is Lord. So what we're going to spend the rest of our time considering this morning is what should we do in response to this? In response to the fact that he is Lord, Master, what should we do in response to that? And so I've got three simple points. First thing that we should do, tear down our old ways. Imagine that your life is building something. You're building a house. And when you come to see the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the first thing that you are going to start doing is tearing down your old ways. There's going to be some demolition involved. And maybe when you think of demolition, you think of sledgehammers, right? That's what I think of. I think of coming into a house and knocking down walls. And that is going to happen. When you see the lordship of Jesus, you're going to come in and say, sin, you're, we're done, right? And you're going to start tearing down walls. But actually, the demolition, the tearing down that you will do of your old ways is a little bit more surgical than that. There's a little bit more precision than that. It might start with a sledgehammer, right? So let's say you've got a big wall of lust in your life. And so you come in, you've seen Jesus as Lord, and you come in and you got a sledgehammer and you start swinging, wham, and you're knocking down this wall of lust. And then what ends up happening is that as the wall starts to crumble and fall down, you find that there are other sins down at the bottom of the wall that were the foundation for it. That there were feeder sins, sins like self-pity, like grumbling, like pride, like laziness. Those are the things that actually are the foundation for the bigger sin, for the, for the glaring sin that you immediately saw and you came in swinging to take down. You find that, oh, there are other things that are feeding this glaring sin that I've got to surgically remove. I've got to, I've got to demo this old way of life brick by brick. So we begin to tear down passivity and entitlement and discontentment and the sins that are beneath the glaring sins in our lives. Um, as we get to know Him more and more as Lord, we find more and more things that grieve Him. And if He's Lord, then we don't leave those things be in our lives. If He's Lord and I find out it grieves Him, I'm getting rid of it. If I forget he's Lord, but I know it grieves him, big deal. But if he's Lord, it's got to go. It must go. And so we confess and turn from our sins. We bring our sins into the light so that it can become clear what it is, so that it can be manifest, so that we can, so that we can get rid of it. We confess it. Repentance 
is the response to seeing Jesus as Lord. In Acts chapter 2, that's this verse that we read, um, Acts chapter 2, 36 through 38. In Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he is presenting the gospel, he's presenting the good news about Jesus to this crowd in the streets. Peter says, Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, that he is Lord and Christ, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, here's the response to seeing him as Lord in Christ, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the first response to seeing the gospel. It's the first response to seeing that this Jesus who was crucified is Lord. You repent. You turn away from sin. And to repent, it means to change one's mind. But in the scriptures, it always implies leaving sin behind, walking away from it, leaving it in the past. And so in believing the gospel, this idea of repentance is connected. In Mark chapter 1, Mark summarizes Jesus' preaching ministry by saying this, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. They go hand in hand. In order to turn away, in order to turn to God, you must turn away from your sins because sin is rebellion against God. Sin is a rejection of God, right? And so to see him as Lord means that you will do what he says, that he's in charge, that he owns you, and he tells you what to do. And so repentance isn't just a suggestion. For those of us who want to go deeper in our Christian lives, this is a command for everyone. Look with me at Acts 17.30. 17, Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere. That includes all of us, I'm pretty sure. All people everywhere to repent. We are all, every one of us, commanded to repent. And so, maybe this feels like old news to you. Maybe you've been around the church for a long time. And you say, why, why are we talking about this again? And the reason is because we need to refresh our memory <laughs> about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We need to stir ourselves up by way of reminder. We, we need to look again at the Lordship of Christ until we feel it at the depth and core of our soul. Because repentance isn't just something you do once and then get baptized and you're saved and you're done. It's a posture of your entire life. It's a way of living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
You're tearing down those old ways, that old behavior that grieves Christ the Lord. You're getting rid of it, removing it from your life. The second thing that we do in response to the lordship of Jesus is we build a new house. We're tearing down the old and we're building something new. We're removing some things and we're adding some things. We're getting rid of walls and we're putting new ones up. Matthew 7, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, verses 24 through 25, Jesus says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. To do the words of Jesus is to build a new house upon him. To build upon his teachings is to build upon him. You can't separate the person from the words, the, the person from the teachings. The teachings, uh, to reject his teachings is to reject him. To, to accept his teachings and to obey them, to build upon them is to accept him. It's to build upon him, you see. And so we build a new life. If he is Lord, we do whatever he commands. His commands are not optional. So we start living a different kind of life altogether. Remember that the invitation that Jesus gives to the people that he wants them to believe in him is come and follow me. It's a life of doing just as Jesus did. It's not, it's not just a confession. It's a change of everything that you are, of everything that you do. And so when we say here at New King, we, we say that it's our mission to help as many people as possible find and follow Jesus. I want to explain something. What we are not saying is that you can find Jesus without following him. It's not what we're saying. I don't want to be confusing. To find Jesus is to begin to follow him. But that is an entire lifelong process. Following Jesus is a lifelong process. And so no one can say, I have found Jesus, I just don't follow him. No one. Because to find him in the way that we're talking about this, in the, in, in meaning that you become a Christian, you, you, you are changed. To become a Christian is to become a new creature, the Bible says. The old has passed away, the new has come. To, to become a Christian is to have an encounter with the living God, to be given a new heart. New desires, new wants, new loves, new way of seeing. It's a transformation at the core which results in a transformation of living. And so when you find him, you will follow him. To turn away from following him again like the rich young ruler means you are not a Christian. Um. In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Jesus says, Go 
Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So that baptism is the starting line. That's the, the proclamation or the declaration. I believe. I've put my faith in Jesus. I'm, I am declaring that publicly. Baptizing them. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So Jesus, part of the, the commissioning to go make disciples is that you teach. We, we're going to teach people to observe, to do everything that he commanded, all that he commanded, because he's Lord. And to, to refuse bits and pieces, the pieces we don't like about what Jesus commands, is to refuse his lordship. He says in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, look at this one and read it slow. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Our, our talk is cheap, according to Jesus. If we have truly come to see Him as Lord, if we call Him Lord, Listen to me, every one of you need to hear this. I needed to hear this again this week. If we call him Lord, it means we are submitting every part of our lives to him. There's nothing off limits. It means we do not pick and choose what we want to obey. If we call him Lord, then we do what he tells us to do. To be a Christian is to live your life with Jesus in charge. And maybe it's confusing to you how this all fits in with the fact that we are saved by grace through faith. We are. We are 100% justified, not by works, but by faith in Jesus. But let me explain it this way. To believe in Jesus is to trust Him. I think probably we all can, can understand this. To just say, I believe that He existed, that, you know, historically He, he, he exists, He came, he, he was the Son of God, came, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, was buried and rose from the dead. Wouldn't we all agree that the demons know all those facts and believe them all? The demons, when they encounter Jesus, fall on their knees. What have we to do with you, son of the living God, son of the Most High? They know who he is. They know what he did. That's not belief. That's not the kind of belief that saves a person. So it's something else altogether. I believe that Abraham Lincoln existed, but I don't put any trust in him. And that's the difference. To believe that a historical figure existed, it's not the same thing as faith in Christ. To believe in Jesus Christ is to believe in a living Lord and to trust Him. Now, what does that mean? If, 
if I trust him, and then he says to me, okay, son, I don't want you to be anxious for anything. This is my command to you, son. I don't want you to be anxious for anything. Then if I were to say, well, I trust you, but it's just that thing I just, I, that's the one thing I just, I don't, I can't, I'm not going to do that one. You name it. You pick the thing that he said. Then he's going to look back at me and say, I thought you said you trusted me, right? Do you trust me or not? And this is, this is a process, but, but the heart, the heart posture, the decision that says, I, I, I want him to have everything, and I understand that this is going to be a lifelong process of giving him my life. That has to be there. That's got to be there if he is Lord and if I have received him as such. And that's why he says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. To call him Lord means that you have a heart to do his will, to do the will of the Father. There is no salvation without submission. To believe is to trust. To trust that He is Lord. Heaven is a place, I believe, that's reserved for those who want to be there. A place where the will of God is carried out at all times by all beings. And if we're not willing to live under the Lordship of Christ now on earth, we will miss the opportunity to live under His Lordship for eternity in heaven. I believe that with all my heart. This is why Jesus says so blatantly in John 15, 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. It's a big if. Again, he's Lord. There's no friendship with the Lord of heaven and earth, the master and owner of it all that does not include submitting to him and doing what he commands. You are my friends if you do what I command you. John 3.36 was a verse that opened my eyes to this in college when I was grappling with the gospel and I was trying to understand I had prayed a prayer as a child in, in church. Um, I had prayed a sinner's prayer. You know, I wanted to go to heaven. And I, I understood the gospel as a child intellectually, but my life didn't change. I didn't ever have a transformation of life at all. No repentance of sin. And so in college, under the weight and guilt of the life I was living, I, I started trying to understand the gospel. I started reading the Bible for myself, digging into everywhere I could find that talked about a person being saved. And I got to this verse, and I remember how this turned the lights on in my mind. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now follow this. 
Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So, if believing were just an intellectual assent to a a list of facts, like I believe in Abraham Lincoln, then then the second part of this verse wouldn't make sense. Because if that's all it were, I believe in the Son like that, then what does the second part of the verse have to do with anything? But what John is trying to show us is that to believe is to obey. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Maybe a better way of putting it is to believe will result in obedience. That's a probably a clearer way of saying it. To believe, to believe in Him is to trust Him. To trust Him will result in obedience to Him. And so, these are implications of the fact that He is Lord. If we truly believe that He is Lord, then we will do what He says. Now, I want to get into my, my final point here, and I just want to say something. I would be a total hypocrite if I stood up here and said that this is easy, that you just, once you just submit yourself to Christ as Lord, uh, that everything in your life is just going to fall into place perfectly. You're going to have a, a perfect track record of of total obedience to Christ. I would be a total hypocrite, and anybody in this room that knows me knows that this is hard for me, (laughs) that I don't have a perfect track record. But it it is our heart posture, our ongoing heart posture is one of submission if we see Him rightly as Lord. So I want to help us. Um, how can uh, there's something that the Lord's been teaching me about that has helped me so much um, in this regard? How can we get better at obeying Him as Lord? And that's my third point. We walk in the fear of the Lord. If He is Lord, then we should fear Him. We fight our sin in the fear of the Lord. The New Testament makes this really clear. A lot of people think that the fear of the Lord is like an Old Testament concept that we sort of left behind with the gospel, that now that there's grace and forgiveness, that we don't fear God anymore. But that's not true. It's actually all in the New Testament. I'm going to point to you to a few passages. If you want more afterwards, you can come talk to me. But in 2 Corinthians 7.1, It says that we bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. We bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Or it says of the early church in Acts 9.31, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, 
the church multiplied. These are the, this is the earliest church, right? Which is also the same church that saw Ananias and Sapphira drop dead because they were lying to the Holy Spirit. Does it seem like God wanted to teach the early church the fear of God? The gospel does not mean that we do away with the fear of the Lord. So we want to walk in the fear of the Lord like the early church. Or going to an Old Testament verse, Psalm 25, 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. It sounds a lot like, you are my friends if you do what I command you, doesn't it? So, the fact that He is Lord means that we should walk in the fear of Him. If He is Lord, we make it our aim to please Him. That's what Paul says. We make it our aim to please Him. Because He is, he is in charge, He is master and owner of us all. Um. One thing that I've been looking at, that I've been grappling with, I'm talking to a few different people this morning about this, is that the Scriptures make it really clear that if He is Lord, then He is judge. Let me show you what I mean. 2 Corinthians 5, 9-11. Let's listen to this. Pay close attention here. Whether we are at home or away, here on earth or in heaven... We make it our aim to please Him. Now, he's going to connect that idea. Make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, I've been trying to grapple with and understand exactly what happens when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We know we're going to. The Scriptures make that really plain. We know that each person will receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We know from another place in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how our works are going to be tested with fire and what was not done for Christ or Christ doing it actually through us is going to get burned up. And, and it says we'll suffer loss at that burning up, but we'll be saved through fire. You can look at that. That's, uh, I think that's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What we know, what we can see that's very plain well, what we know from the gospel very plainly is believers are not going to be punished for sin. That Jesus took the punishment for our sin. This is the gospel. This is how we're justified. Jesus, when he hung on the cross, took the punishment. He took the wrath of God. He paid the penalty for our sins. We are no longer going to be punished for our sins. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what we know for sure is when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, there's not going to be any condemnation and there's not going to be any punishment. There's no wrath. 
for our sins. But the other thing is, let's look at that one more time. We, we know that the fact that we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ is a motivator for us to make it our aim to please Him. Right? And we know that it should produce in us some fear of the Lord. And maybe that's because we know the wrath that is going to come for those who are not in Christ. Maybe that's what it is. I, I, I was thinking about it in this way. When if I, I was reading about the Passover in Exodus, maybe you're familiar with the story. God sent nine plagues upon Egypt to convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. He refuses nine times, and he says, fine, okay, last one. This is the one that's going to do it. And the tenth plague is that God sends a destroyer, is the word, to wipe out the firstborn of every person and animal in the land. Unless, unless you have the blood of a sacrificial lamb applied to the door of your home. If you have the blood of this lamb on the door of your home, the destroyer will pass you by. Judgment passes your home by. Now, but let me just ask the question this way. Say you're in one of the homes that the destroyer passes by and you don't, nobody in your home dies. Don't you think that for those families, those Israelite families, that when they look back on that night, they still look back with fear and trembling? Even though they avoided the judgment? Because the Lord is a God to be feared. Whatever the case, whatever the reasoning exactly, there's going to be some disagreement about. What we can see very clearly is that to reflect on and think about the final judgment, the day that we're all going to stand before Jesus, and every knee will bow before Him, and every tongue will confess that He is what? Lord. That day is meant to when we think about it, it's meant to bring fear to our hearts. If you look at, didn't have time to get into this this morning, but if you want to look at it on your own in Philippians 2, Paul connects us bowing our knee before him as Lord to, he says, now work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So to fear him because he is Lord is, is a New Testament concept, not just an Old Testament concept. Romans 14, we're getting near the end, so hang with me. Romans 14, I want to just look at this together. It says, for if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether you live, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We belong to him. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. 
For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. The fact that he is Lord means he owns us and it means that we will give an account of ourselves to him. And so remembering these things has a sobering effect on us and and remembering the judgment should should produce in us a new a fresh gratitude for the gospel because what the gospel tells us is that Jesus did not want us to face this day in our sins and so he came and lived the life that we should have lived. He lived the perfectly obedient life. He fulfilled the whole law, and then He went to the cross in our place to be our substitute, and He took our sins upon Himself, and He took the punishment. He took the judgment so that it wouldn't have to be such a horrible day for us who have believed. So we know that to remember this judgment is to refresh our memories of how sweet the gospel is. Now, I want to close with this. I'm almost done. I, as I said at the beginning, reflecting on these things, re- refreshing my, my memory about this stuff, about his lordship, has been so refreshing and encouraging to me. In Acts 319 through 20, it says, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance always results in refreshing. When you read uh, Psalm 32, it talks about how happy, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are blotted out. And it talks, David writes about how that the hand of the Lord was upon him and it was, it was zapping his strength like in a hot, hot summer day until he confessed his sins to the Lord, turned away from them, and the Lord renews him. And so repenting results in a refreshing. And I've been meditating on this, these two verses in Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, 7 through 8 say, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I understand that many of you have had a tough couple of weeks. The last couple of weeks have been heavy, wearisome, that you've lacked joy, that you've lacked strength. This is not just you. It's not just your story. It's happening to a lot of people. And this sermon was, I believe, exactly what God knows that our church needs to be refreshed, to be healed. If you want this Christmas season to be a season of joy, of refreshment, of healing, then meditate on the Lordship of Jesus. Fear Him and turn away from evil, and it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. It has been for me. So choose Christian, choose 
once again in your heart to live fully submitted to the lordship of Jesus. Every area of your life, let there be no nook or cranny that isn't his, no rock unturned. Give it all to him and you will experience times of refreshing. And for those of of you in the room who have not yet believed, I just want to invite you to believe, to turn to him and to see him and to receive him as Lord. It says in Romans 10, 9 and then uh, 12 through 13, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He died in order that he might save us from our sins. And he was raised in order that he would be Lord of all. So turn from your sins. Run to him. Obey him. All that he commands. And he will call you friend. Let's pray. Lord, It's not just a name. It's who you are, Jesus. You are Lord. You are Master. You are the sovereign King over the universe. Help us, Lord, to see you rightly. Help us to be encouraged by the fact by the fact that the friendship of the lord is for those who fear you and help us to pursue walking in the fear of you all our days thank you that you have not simply called us servants but friends what a privilege that the lord of the universe would call us friends Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us to save us from our sins and for being raised in order that you might become Lord of all. And we praise you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.